just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. Salt Lake City's Racial Equity and Policing Commission began in response to a municipal and national reckoning over racism in policing. It was the summer of 2020, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and locally, the release of body cam footage showing the killing of Bernardo Palacios Carvajal by the Salt Lake City Police Department. So, what has the commission accomplished in the past three years? It's Wednesday, April 26th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Nicole Salazar-Hall, you are the outgoing chair of Salt Lake City's Racial Equity and Policing Commission. How do you define the commission's mandate? I define the commission's mandate as reviewing city policy, both for Salt Lake City and the Salt Lake City Police Department, to create a more just and equitable police department for the entire city. Well, when the commission was formed in 2020, the relationship between the Salt Lake City Police Department and many residents was highly contentious. It was probably made more so by police showing up to protest that summer in riot gear. What did you want to accomplish when you joined this commission? We wanted to accomplish a, a plan that would set into motion a longstanding culture shift in policing in Salt Lake City. Mm. So our, our biggest issue was determining how to create a law enforcement office that was both equitable within the department itself among the officers, but would also create trust with the larger community and so that the larger community of all races, genders, mental health, everything would feel more comfortable seeking for help and would not feel threatened, particularly in light of the George Floyd murder by law enforcement. Yeah. I noticed you used we referring to the commission's goals on the whole, but I'm curious, like personally for you, what made you want to do this work? What were your goals? My goals were the same. The, the fun thing about the commission early on is the core commissioners were all pretty much aligned in what we wanted to see from the Salt Lake City Police Department and Salt Lake City in general from the inception of the commission moving forward into the future. We really felt that we needed to make sure that Salt Lake City's police department reflected the diversity of the larger community and that the community gain trust in in the office so that they could feel like they could go to help without being brutalized or murdered. Mm -hmm. What sort of changes did you want to see that would catalyze that culture shift or establishment of trust? Yeah, the the biggest ones were were in the training and recruitment. We wanted to make sure the training was in line with the, the goals that we were looking for, specifically making sure that we had officers who understood communities of color or could work with communities of color without engaging in in brutality or over-policing or harsh policing. We wanted to make sure that they were community partners together, not enemies. Mm. And there was some of that perception from the community during those those early days and and 
for a very long time, just based on the, the history of policing nationwide. I know one of the things that a lot of protesters were asking for was a demilitarization of our police force. Was that something that the commission acknowledged? It is. Yes, absolutely. That was one of our concerns. Militarization of law enforcement offices nationwide has been an ongoing problem, really starting uh, post-Vietnam War in the 80s. So we were hoping to to work on that. And we know that that's, that's a very long-standing kind of goal. Pretty much everything that we wanted to implement were, were long-standing goals that would take years and years to really fully implement and realize. But that was one that we, we were concerned about was the militar- militarization of Salt Lake City Police Department. Well, we're here out now three years from the commission's inception. What has the commission accomplished? First, we've established a very strong uh, relationship with Salt Lake City Police Department. Another one of our goals was definitely not to make their jobs any harder. We, we recognized how difficult that job is, that it, it really kind of is an impossible job that we as a society ask of them. And we didn't want to complicate it any further. So we, we were very careful to make sure we did have that, that law enforcement, all levels of law enforcement input when we were first creating those policies. Mm-hmm. What else has the commission accomplished? We've managed to put in place policies that and revise policies that do positively affect training and recruitment. Um, we do have a new civilian recruiter um, and a recruitment program that will recruit the right types of officers and who, mm. who ultimately comes to work for Salt Lake City Police. And there are training programs within Salt Lake City Police Department that we do have control over that do fo- now will focus on the history of many of the, the various neighborhoods in Salt Lake City so that officers who are going into those communities and working in those communities will know the history behind those, those neighborhoods and understand why perhaps some of the, the residents may or may not respond well to law enforcement and how to work better with them. More often than not, there, there's a very good reason why a neighborhood is distrustful of law enforcement. And it's really incumbent on everybody to, to rebuild that trust. But it, having the law, law enforcement side extend that olive branch is very helpful and really kicks off that, that building of trust. I mean, the goal of police seeing community members as partners and not enemies seems a little bit difficult to measure. How are you all measuring success? Yeah, it is difficult to measure. We realize that when we're walking into this, it's going to be at minimum five years before we're going to see any sort of results, more like 20 before you're going to see that that massive culture shift that we really, really want to see. Mm. We a felt long time. It's a very long time. You cannot make massive societal change overnight. We didn't want to have a massive shift all at once because those can fall apart pretty quickly. And and you can sometimes have a blowback where it gets worse than when you found it. So we wanted to make sure this was done incrementally so it lasts and it's positive. Um, But we were hoping that with some of the measures, we would see fewer uh, police shootings, fewer law enforcement involved incidents, um, fewer complaints from the community that they were uh, mistreated, treated unfairly or brutalized by law enforcement. And have you seen that? You know, I have not looked recently at the data, but I know it is it is tracked by, by law enforcement. And that was helpful from the beginning that we already had that tracking mechanism in place. So it's I'm not sure where we stand right now with the number of law enforcement involved incidents. The only other problem that we're facing with that is the way that residents and, and individuals who are involved with law enforcement are, are classified by ethnicity. We, we did implement a, a policy that law enforcement would not just 
report what um, an individual's race or ethnicity was. It would be self-reported by the person involved. We did implement further policies that would allow them to, to have that data included and to have it disaggregated. So, and, and by that, I mean, oftentimes Latinos are included as white. And some Latinos do identify as white. And if they self-identify as white, that's great. If they do not identify as white, we don't want them to be classified as white if that's not how they identify. So we're, we're hopeful that as soon as that is being implemented, we'll have a better idea of really what is going on with our policies and if they really are effective. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you want to learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, And be one in a class of 19, not 100. I want to ask you about this idea that this is a 20-year-out culture shift, that this is a 10, 20-year plan. Because when I think about the summer of 2020 in this city and the protests that led to the commission being formed, ostensibly, if I had to define it in one word, I think that word would be urgency. That was what was felt in the streets. How does it make you feel having to reckon with the fact that this work will take that long? Well, I've been involved in this work for quite some time. So I've known for Mm -hmm. a very long time that this change does take a lot of time. The urgency was we got to review these policies immediately. We've got to come up with recommendations immediately. I think most of us did review the the entirety of that Salt Lake City Police Handbook, um, reviewed city policies. I know I did additional outside reading from various studies um, work on in other cities that had been done that was similar. We knew that there would not be any sort of immediate change overnight. It, it takes a lot to get that change in place. Um, and if we went too quickly, we knew we'd lose some of those those officers 
who are who are in the field every day. And those are the last people we wanted to lose. What's it been like working with the Salt Lake City Police Department over these past three years? How has that relationship evolved? Chief Brown and, and his his executive staff, they, they were immediately very easy to work with. Um, they're very open to, to criticism, comments. Uh, they actually shared a lot of what we wanted to see as well. There was quite a bit of distrust with the patrol officers, detectives, the, the people who were, who were on the ground every day, and understandably so. Once we really kind of said, look, we our goal is not to just fire all of you, get rid of all of you, and selectively hire who we want back. That's not going to be helpful. They felt a lot better about us working or doing the work that we're doing. The raise that we approved so that every single officer would receive a substantial raise in their salaries, that that did help hmm. build some of that trust. Because then they saw us as not just uh, wanting to take their jobs away or not recognizing what they're doing, but it, it helped them see that, no, we recognize that you were put in a very difficult and very dangerous job, and you need to be compensated for that. And if we want to have good officers, we've got to pay for them. So that, that helped quite a bit. How have you all worked to or managed to build trust with the communities most affected by what you've set out to do? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, listening sessions with the various communities. My biggest takeaway was the distrust between the community and law enforcement. They did not feel safe going to law enforcement for help. They felt over-policed. They felt like they were disregarded with their mental health issues and that they were, um, I wouldn't say targeted, but um, they weren't treated well if you were a person of color. So then members of the commission essentially heard that and now are tasked with figuring out how to make policy changes that rebuild trust, which, I mean, it's tough to do that often in a bureaucratic way. These things are much more holistic. (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's the 20-year change that we're talking about is, is building that trust takes at least 20 years. And then you still have a bit of a generational um, kind of divide. I've heard the stories from way back in the 50s and, and 40s when, according to my family in Salt Lake, it was illegal to be brown. If you're a person of color, you've heard those those stories that are passed down from your grandparents and your parents and your aunts and uncles and your cousins and their experiences with law enforcement. Um, for some families, it's worse. Some families, it's better. My family's involvement with law enforcement was um, kind of a mixed bag because I have law enforcement family members. Mm-hmm. So it's it's both a, I see what you're going through and I know what you're going through. And I know the fear of hearing about a shooting in my cousin's district that they were covering and wanting to know if they were okay and, and worrying about their safety, hearing them go out on calls. And, you know, there's some violence happening and hoping that your cousin would be safe. But I also knew some of my other family members and their involvement, which was not so positive with law enforcement, that is difficult. And it, it, that's what we're saying will take a lot of time is to really build that trust that we want to see. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, of course, is required for the Racial Equity and Policing Commission and the Police Civilian Review Boards to be effective is for there to be eyes on them and board members. And I'm seeing 11 vacancies out of 21 seats on the Civilian Review Board as of right now. It looks like a lot of seats on the Policing Commission are up at the end of this year. What is the process or what is the pipeline for getting people engaged with these roles and and like fresh faces? Because we see a lot of the same people on boards in this city. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not easy work. I, I will say that it is it is time consuming. 
Um, and if you really want to put in good effort and really make some good changes, you, you need to put in the effort. So that is, that's the hard part is, is getting people who are willing to do it and have the ability to do it um, and have the ability to work with a team. And that, that is tricky. Policy work, it's not easy. It's, it's not protesting in the street. You're not getting your anger out in the same way. It's, it's very prolonged. And that can be frustrating for a lot of people, make them lose a lot of hope. And it's, you just got to keep in mind that this is hard, hard work, and it feels like a slog most days. <laughs> but you just got to stick with it. Listen, I've sat on my fair share of diversity and inclusion genre boards, and I do mm-hmm. think sometimes people stop showing up because they feel disillusioned that the boards, mm-hmm. maybe they feel that the board's power or influence was oversold. How powerful is the Racial Equity and Policing Commission? I'm very powerful. We've been able to, to change some policies and implement new ones that otherwise would not have happened. We had a pot of money to work with, which is how we, we got the new training recruitment team and, and efforts in place. That's something that would not have happened otherwise without the commission. Um, and we were very careful on how that, that pot of money was going to be spent. We wanted to make sure that it was going to be spent on, on good things that would build that lasting change. So some of it like peer court, getting uh, youth involved in in law enforcement in a positive way was was one of those things. The student resource officers was another another set of money that we were given to help um, really revamp the memorandum of understanding between the city, the district, and the police department so that we would make sure that those kids were having positive experiences with law enforcement early on, not negative ones. It's very easy to become disillusioned on these boards, for sure. I know I've had my, sh- my fair share of days where I'm like, I'm not doing anything. But you have to remind yourself that change comes but slowly. And if you want la- long-lasting change, it really does need to come slowly and incrementally so you get buy-in from everybody, and it stays. Well, on that note, I mean, we're currently in a mayoral election year. Mm-hmm. How could the results of our city's mayoral race impact the work of the commission down the line? I think it depends on if a new, a new administration comes on board. I don't know what a new administration or how a new administration would view this commission. I don't know what a new administration would do with, with the chief either, because that could have an effect as well. So it's, it's kind of a big unknown. I mean, we are an ordinance but I would hope that they would not try to undo that ordinance, though I don't know if, if that would pass muster with, with the council. I know they were very much um, in favor of this and were really instrumental early on in making sure that this commission got off the ground. I can't imagine it would be a good look to disband the Racial <laughs> Equity and Policing Commission. Nicole, I'm going to be honest, yeah. I, I agree, though, um, you know, can never we predict don't know. the future. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mayor Mendenhall recently released her re-election video, video announcement. And in it, there's a line that I thought was really interesting, and I want to ask you about it. And she says that um, Salt Lake City is, and this is a quote, fundamentally changing how the city keeps the public safe. Do you agree with that? Do you think we've seen fundamental changes to how the city keeps the public safe? I think the city is making changes, and that is reflected in the, the classes that are being recruited, the laterals who are being recruited, the mental health services being provided to law enforcement to ensure that their trauma does not leak out onto how they police in the community, the public outreach, and making sure that there are, there are positive public interactions between law enforcement and, and community members. Mayor Mendenhall has been very open to implementing pretty much whatever we've been recommending and making sure it's done. And um, Chief Brown has done a great job in, in making sure that those are being implemented and keeping up with us on those changes and how those 
how all of our policies are in the works or have been accomplished. What does fundamental change feel like in this city to how we keep each other safe? It's going to be difficult to perceive Mm. overall. It's when one day you wake up, you see uh, a law enforcement vehicle drive by and you don't cringe. You, You go, oh, good they're around. We want to go back to, you know, when my dad was telling stories about being Ill- being brown is illegal in Salt Lake. That was back in the 60s. And we can say, oh, yeah, that was really bad. It's not nearly as bad now. Like, you, you don't just get pulled over for being a brown person, although that's arguable still. <laughs> but yeah. we want to be able to say that doesn't happen anymore. That's great. Mm-hmm. We're not getting shot by law enforcement. We're, you know, people with mental illness are getting the help they need instead of being brutalized. Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that. That used to happen. How did that stop? That's what we want to be able to see. Nicole Salazar-Hall, outgoing chair of Salt Lake City's Racial Equity and Policing Commission. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ellie. I appreciate it. If you are interested in joining Salt Lake's Racial Equity and Policing Commission, I put a link in the show notes with all the details and the application. You don't have to reside in the city proper, but you do need to have strong ties here. And you've got to be over 16. Now, when I asked Nicole if there were professional requirements, she said no. They just want people who are passionate about this work. As for the time commitment, the commission meets once a month on the second Thursday from 5.30 to 7 p.m. And there are subcommittee meetings in between. So you're probably looking at around four to five hours a month. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.